Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. All right. Am I good? I think Kelly was an MC and, uh, before this. Or maybe a hype woman or something. I don't know. I would like a hype woman or a hype man. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Uh, hi. Uh, I am your guest speaker today because hopefully Jeff is out working on his tan somewhere. Um, he's from Wisconsin, for those of you who don't know. He's, he's really, really, really white. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm a pastor, or I'm not a pastor. I'm just a guy, uh, a husband, a father, a part-time wannabe handyman, and a, data, a full-time data scientist which is either really awesome or super nerdy, depending on your viewpoint. Uh, If you think it's really awesome, then we can nerd out later. Uh, Point being, I'm not a full-time preacher, and that's something I want you to remember as we're going along today, is that it doesn't matter what your background is, that you can talk to others about Jesus, talk about him too. Now, the story we're going to be going into today is in Acts 8, and it's one of the first examples of the church body going outward to do this. Now, Acts 8 is a pivotal point in the book of Acts. Up until today, uh, so for where we've been so far, up until today, Acts has resided completely in Jerusalem, talking about the immediate disciples of, of Jesus. But in Acts 8 is where it all changes, and it goes outside of Jerusalem, and uh, it's where it more follows about what the rest of the believers are doing elsewhere, bringing the loving message of truth, grace, and forgiveness, the story of Jesus, to everyone, everywhere. And and I'll be using this story to illustrate how we're called to deliver this same message to everywhere in our lives. Now, I'm up here uh, sharing conversations about Jesus today because I happen to enjoy it. I'll tell you how long I put into preparing for it. Um, It took me a lot of time and research. Uh, But I also happen to enjoy telling people about Jesus. Uh, If you're wondering, yes, it's gotten slightly less awkward over time. Uh, At least from my side of the conversation, you'd have to ask the other people. Uh, about it from theirs. Um, And over the years of having these conversations, I've realized something. I'm not good at talking to everyone. Uh, There are some people I'll never be able to relate to uh, because our background differences or um, personality clashes or different languages, or for whatever reason, the communication just doesn't relate. Um, I can't relate to somebody about drug addiction. I can relate to somebody about video game addiction. Uh, There's a whole slew of things that I can and can't relate to. There's some things that uh, I personally don't bring to the table. Um, I've been talking about this a lot lately. Does anybody know anybody who's a really, really good hugger? Like, there's somebody that uh, is in our, that may or may not be uh, sitting here today, um, and she is an amazing hugger. She's got this ability to hug you, and then when you, you try to pull away, and then she, like, brings you back in. And it feels uncomfortable at first, but then you kind of give in to her authority, and you're like, yeah, I, okay, I kind of like this moment. Um, I was also recently uh, walking around at Adopt-A-Block uh, with another woman um, who's kind of like this, and that uh, we were telling people about Jesus door-to-door, and she had met somebody for five minutes and then spent the next five minutes hugging, praying, and crying with another woman. And I'm like, man, like, 
a five-minute hug, like, I can't even imagine. Like, that's, that, that's just not me. Like, we're, uh, we're all created with different strengths and weaknesses. That, that's just not me. But ultimately, we, the regular, uh, the regular guys and gals at the church body, are called to use these strengths and weaknesses not to just love people, but to tell people about the good news of the gospel. To paraphrase a pastor, the primary job of Christians is not to build houses or to provide food. The primary job is to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Not on Sunday mornings, but um, in our everyday lives. And what is this good news, and why do we need to spread it? Well, the good news is simply that I'm, I'm forgiven. Even though I know I'm completely unable to stop doing uh, bad things, God has proven that through Jesus that he has power over my sin, power over death, and shows me love, grace, and forgiveness that I'm incapable of doing on my own. And that's a message that I need to hear, and that's a message that everyone needs to hear. I mean, can you imagine how the world would react right now if we told a person that, hey, no matter what you've done, you are forgiven? You think the world needs to hear that right now? You think Johnny Depp and Amber Heard need to hear that right now? You think you need to hear that right now? In a world that's bloodthirsty for justice and self-righteousness, the idea of grace and forgiveness is almost incomprehensible. And I'm certainly not capable of showing everyone that much unconditional love and grace. I falter all the time. So out of thankfulness for what Jesus has shown me, I should want to tell other people that they can get in on it too. It's like the opposite of taking that last piece of cake for yourself. It's a free slice of tiramisu forgiveness and grace pie for everyone. So there's three things I want to hit on today of why you should share the gospel with those in your life. Um, number one, it's not out of guilt or trying to earn approval. Number two, it's not out of pursuit or power or privilege. And number three, it's because it's truth, grace, and forgiveness that we were given. All right, so number one, not out of guilt or earning favor. I know what you might be thinking when, I, when you heard the word evangelism. You're thinking, oh, crap. Uh, I know where he's going with this. He's going to try to guilt us into holding up a sign saying, repent, the end is near. Um, and it's funny because I've actually had that conversation with somebody before. Like the word evangelism was a trigger word that triggered all these bad memories of evangelism in its classical sense. Um, it's like the loud guy on the corner or Gary the brickyard preacher if he's still around. And that is certainly one approach to, Jesus, uh, to telling people about Jesus. I'm, I'm not going to fault a man's heart. Uh, for wanting to tell people about Christ, even, the, you know, even if he's screaming from the corner. I don't think it's the best approach, personally, um, but I'm not going to fault him for it. So to be clear, that's not what we're talking about here. And I'm also not saying that God is going to be mad or disappointed in you for choosing not to tell people. While feelings of guilt may be a powerful motivator, it cannot be the primary motivator for sharing the gospel. Sharing is also not out of trying to earn God's favor. I mean, for the longest time, I struggled with the idea of what it would look like to be a good Christian and what I'd have to do to make him look good to those around me through my actions. And I, so I think I was raised with this understanding of do good things and that'll make God happy. And then prior to my baptism, when I was about 30 or so, um, I had a conversation with Jeff at the Flying Biscuit Cafe over there in Cameron Village for lunch. And out of that conversation, I finally got it. 
It took a long, long time to get it through this thick, thick skull that the extent to which I tried to act or earn or clean myself up was the extent to which I diminished the grace that Christ gave to me on the cross. And here's exactly why. For it is grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You cannot earn God's favor. So today, I want to be really careful that this is not how my message comes across, as I probably still fall into this mindset, or that mindset if I'm not careful, that we can rejoice in the freedom of the gift he's given to us, and the thankfulness of grace and forgiveness will bear a welcomed obedience to what he's called us to do. And what has he called us to do? Well, there's two times um, that he's called us to what's called the, the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, he tells his 11 disciples, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then in Acts 1, where, you know, where, this is, uh, where we've been studying, after demons, Jesus has demonstrated his power over death, he gives very specific instructions to his followers. In Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Which brings us to, to where we are today, Acts 8. The first step towards the fulfillment of this calling. In fact, they say that Acts 8.1 is the first step of fulfilling Acts 1.8 which is what we just had on screen. And this is the pivotal moment in Acts where it starts talking about the, the non-original 11 disciples going out into the world. So if we look at Acts 8.1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Those who were, uh, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now two things. Note that from Acts 1-8, it says that uh, you'll be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria. Here it says that they are going out to Judea and Samaria. Um, and the very last, the very last uh, phrase there, preaching the word, comes from the Greek. I'm going to really, yeah, that word. Eu-evangelimani. It, mean, it literally means to share the word. And there, So the early Christians went to tell folks about Jesus, the incarnate word, the, the word of God in a man's body. So really preaching the word of who uh, Jesus was. Now, Philip will be introduced here in a minute, and he's one of the main characters of Acts 8. And his title is Philip the Evangelist, which comes from that same word. Um, Philip the Ugelistes, I think that's how you say that. And it's one who shares the word. But there's another Greek word that I want to talk about, it, and it's a, it comes, uh, we're all familiar with the English word martyr. Now, martyr is actually a derivative of the ancient Greek word martos. It looks like martis, but it's pronounced martos. If you could bring that next one up. All right. And um, martos is literally translated to mean witness. So when we saw in Acts 8.1, or, sorry, when we saw in Acts 1-8, that you will be my witnesses, it is you will be my martos, which is, uh, you know, similar to that. And we left off last week where John was talking about um, the death of the first martyr, Stephen, 
with the message that serving Christ alone requires costly grace. And that's where we take off, that's where Acts 8 takes off. All right, so we're into the first, or the second thing now. Uh, Sharing the gospel is not a pursuit of power or privilege. Now, we're really going to dive deep into the story of Acts 8 in this next part, so we're going to stay here for a while, so just, uh, just bear with me. Now, obviously, Stephen was not in pursuit of power or privilege. And the story of Acts 8 begins and picks up after his stoning, his uh, his stoning today. So, and Paul approved of his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered out through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, this was was the first full-blown assault and persecution of the church. Now, Jesus had been persecuted, and, uh, but not really his followers. This is thing, when things ramp up, buried Stephen, and made great lamentation over him. Great lamentation. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about proclaiming the word. Again, the same word, evangelizing. Can you imagine being chased out of Raleigh for saying that you believe something? But the first thing you want to do is go tell people about it elsewhere. Like, that's, that's what happened. They were, uh, they were being persecuted against, and so they went somewhere else and told people the same message. And the, the verse continues, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the, uh, to them Christ. Again, this word evangelized. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Great persecution, great lamentation, great joy. Ultimately, wherever there is the gospel is shared, there is great joy. And Luke wanted to highlight these, this parallel. He wanted to be certain that this pattern of the gospel was known to the readers, and it still holds true today. As one pastor put it, the church has never been stifled by persecution. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, I read a tongue-in-cheek quote one time about that General Mao Zedong was the greatest evangelist ever. For those of you who don't know, General Mao was an atheist and the founder of the Chinese Communist Party in the 1940s through the 1970s or so. And he cracked down on anything that superseded the authority of the government or presented presented an issue of of being opposed to the Chinese government's authority. Obviously, Christianity was a natural target. I'm going to read this quote. From 1966 to 1976, Mao Zedong's great proletariat cultural revolution banned all religious establishments, which ironically provided an astonishing new freedom for rural evangelists who wandered from village to village quite clandestinely, providing ministry, encouragement, and support to families all over China. In other words, a house church movement in China that spread Christianity throughout. And according to research at Baylor uh, from last year, since 1980, it's been estimated that the church in China has grown at about 7% a year, up to 100 million last year, which means that despite this persecution that still runs rampantly today, and even, I was just reading about this, that the uh, Chinese government is actually trying to sinicize all religions right now, that in spite of all that, the truth and grace offered by Christianity continues to thrive. 
Now, can you imagine that in America? Jeff has talked about the rise and decline of the cultural influence, or uh, the, of the cultural influence that, um, that Christianity has on culture, and how in the 1990s it was seen as a positive, 10 years ago it was neutral, and today it's seen as a negative. So this issue of pursuing or power, or power or status, bleh, you know. In fact, uh, I had a conversation with a guy who didn't believe in the gospel, and he said it's because he didn't trust Christians. And this was about 2015. He said that he believes, he assumed that the only reason people believed in Christianity was for political power and social status. And that quote has really stuck with me for a long time, especially during election season. And I began to wonder if having less social status and still believing in something would demonstrate the truth of the situation better. By forcing followers of Christ, me included, to demonstrate grace more readily to, uh, to the, to the uh, people in power. Making the opportunity to demonstrate how our love for others uh, is even costlier and to make the truth about it. So let's get back to the passage in 8 because I want to highlight why it's such a uh, big deal that Samaria was the uh, first place they went to proclaim the gospel. Like, this is one of those, God writes such a great story here. So if you look up, if you look at the map of this time, this is a modern-day map overlaid with what it would have been like at that time. Samaria here is in the northern part of modern-day Israel. You can see Jerusalem there in the middle. Um, now, there are two Jewish tribes of the north that were descendants of Joseph, as in Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, Joseph, uh, taken by the Assyrian Empire in, like, the 700 B.C.s. Over hundreds of years, this, uh, the, um, the Assyrian Empire, sorry, over, the, over hundreds of years, the Assyrian Empire uh, conquered other territories, and what they would do is take those people and move them to Samaria. And so those people uh, would come and intermarry all the remaining Jews that were there. And so it was like a melting pot of the Jewish tradition. So um, some Jewish beliefs uh, ch uh, changed over time, and obviously the bloodline was not pure Jewish. So the Jews of Israel did not consider them full-blooded and did not agree with the way that they practiced Judaism. And so what we see at this time is like just straight-up racism, just straight-up racism. And ultimately, I'm sure you guys have heard this before, that's, the, that's why the story of the Good Samaritan was so impactful uh, to those who listened. That's why the woman at the well asked Jesus, the Samaritan woman at the well asked Jesus, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a, Jewish, uh, you're a Jewish teacher. Because it was common knowledge that the Samaritans were deemed as inferior people to the Jews. Yet Samaria was the first place that Jesus wanted them to go. Like, how wonderful is that? In Jesus' ministry, he talked over and over about there being no separation between Jews and Gentiles and that the gospel is for everyone. But this is the first implementation of people actually going out into the world and doing that. Now, imagine UNC basketball just won a championship, and the first thing they were called to do is share their winnings with Duke. Or, to make the analogy a little bit better, uh, what if UNC wasn't allowed to play basketball anymore, and so the first thing they had to do is share all of their winnings and all of their trophies with Duke? You think old Roy would be down for that? It's not, it's not the best analogy. Or, or if Texas had to share all of their football stuff with Texas A&M. Right, John? Yeah. 
<laughs> All right, but so, yeah, it's not the best analogy, but you get what I'm saying. It's really, really crazy that this is got how God wanted history to play out. Socially, there's a lot at stake. Um, so there's an obvious message of racial tension here, and I, I don't want to gloss over it, but I think it deserves its own exposi- exposition, not as a highlight in a sermon about evangelism, but I do want to call this out so that it's not the elephant in the room. As an example of this racism, one last example, John uh, once asked Jesus, so this is when Jesus was still walking the earth, once asked Jesus to rain fire down upon a Samaritan village for failing to offer Jesus hospitality. <laughs> so this comes from Luke 9:54, and Jesus sent messengers on ahead of him when, who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciple James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Because they said, you're not welcome in our house. Like, that's some deep-seated anger. But check it out here in a few verses. John's going to show up again to show up per, uh, and perform miracles and provide the Holy Spirit to the Samaritan people. And something has happened to John during the time between these two. Something has changed in him. He didn't just hear the words of Jesus. He began to live them out. To share his witness and not build his power and status in Samaria. But before this, let's get back to Philip. Philip the evangelist comes in. What I love about this is that Philip was not a disciple, and he was, all, for all intents and purposes, just a guy. He's the only one described as an evangelist in the whole Bible, but he's just a guy. And this is funny. Hebrew names often mean something. Um, if y'all remember my story of Rahab uh, that we went through um, back in December, Rahab's name was very uh, specific. But Philip just means lover of horses. Like, if you know a Philip, just ask if he likes horses. It, it doesn't mean anything. He's just a guy. Philip was just a guy, a guy who happened to love horses. He was just a witness. And eventually, come, uh, Philip comes across a big name in the city, Simon the Magician, or Simon the Sorcerer. All right, we continue in Acts 8, uh, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, note the intentional contrast here between Simon and Philip. Both men were holding the audience captive. But Simon is here pictured as a well-respected celebrity and well-practiced magician. Philip was just a guy from out of town. He had truth, grace, and the power of the Holy Spirit, which God wanted to be demonstrated to these people most hated by the Jews. And yet he was able to demonstrate a power anything, unlike anything Simon, who was a practiced magician, had done. And from best we tell, Philip was not doing this to outshine Simon. This was not a pissing contest between two guys. It was not to gain power and authority. Philip is only, in fact, Philip is only mentioned once more, several chapters later, as in passing. But Simon felt the, uh, the gospel was for personal gain. And here's where Peter and John show back up to provide backup to Philip. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, 
so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Now, Peter rightly rebukes him here. And most of the rebuking, uh, just to highlight this, most of the rebuking in the New Testament comes to those uh, who are in a position of authority or celebrity. In this case, Simon was a big celebrity. And Simon wanted to use God's power for his own personal gain, knowing that the gospel and receiving the Holy Spirit is not for power or privilege. Even after he was initially rebuked, you can tell that Simon still just didn't get it. And it continues, you have neither uh, part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Um, Peter continues, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to, to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Reading that last sentence again, you'll notice that even in this apology, Simon still wasn't really concerned with his heart aligning with God's purpose. He was only concerned for himself. Like, Peter had to be like, come on, man. And this is the part where Jeff probably felt when he was sitting with me in the Flying Biscuit. Like, dude, you've been in church for like three years. You've heard this over and over. How are you not getting this yet? It's not about you. But instead, Jeff answered me with his classically calm demeanor. And eventually, I got it. And that's how the gospel is supposed to be shared. Over and over and over until we get it. I've heard it said that people need to be invited to church eight times before they come. And there's several conversations before that, and there's several conversations after that, so that the truth of the gospel is known and understood. All right. And if that sounds like a lot of time and energy, it is. <laughs> great suffering, great lamentation, and great joy is probably the most common pattern of the gospel. But the joy is great. And it is because of the truth and grace that we're given of why we share. So this is the third point. Even the joy of learning is great. I mean, the more I've talked to people about Jesus, the more I've come to realize that it's not about matters of the brain. For a long time, I studied apologetics, and I, I, I would say that I could logic the crap out of anybody. But what I've realized is that it's all, through all my conversations, it's always, always a matter of the heart. People are desperately longing to hear truth and grace. We live in what's called an age of um, postmodernism, which is essentially uh, a rebellion against the idea of a universal truth. However, at the same time, people desperately concede to the universal idea that something is terribly wrong in the world around us and the, the emotional toil that living life brings. And through this, we have the opportunity to show this world truth and grace. We get to bring light into an ultimately dark worldview to help people understand their created purpose, not because it makes us look good, not because it gets us brownie points, not because it earns us authority or power, but because the truth of what Jesus did for us is documented as a piece of our collective history. And because we've all been affected and we've all been changed for the better. And that we should love people enough to share this message. <clears throat> but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, 
and you will be my martyrs in Jerusalem, or my martis, my martos in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are not called to be evangelists, a preacher, a missionary, to speak on stage, or to be a martyr, but we are all, you all, I am, called to be a witness of truth, grace, and forgiveness Jesus has onto your life. Now, as I was preparing for my sermon this week, I was talking with my neighbor, Grova. With Grova, if you're watching, thanks, man. He recommended to, uh, to watch his own church's sermon from this past week called, Can I Get a Witness? So I watched it, so I watched it and I was blown away. Thank you, God, th- thank you, God, for allowing Grova to speak to me through you. Now, I don't have the charisma or depth of knowledge of this pastor, but I felt that the message that he said fit so perfectly here that I'm going to do my best to represent Dr. Wesley was the preacher's name. A 2018 survey done by Pew Research found that 80% of Christians believe that they should share their faith. 68% of people do not. That's a heck of a discrepancy. So my question to you all is, when was the last time you had a conversation with somebody with the intention of sharing what Jesus has done in your life? And if not recently, why not? For sure, for sure, there's a lot of fears in this conversation. The most common one is the feeling of being unprepared and unqualified to have this conversation. Fear of the, if God, then why? Those questions are really difficult questions. And part of the fear is, what if I can't answer this myself? Well, theodicy is a big word, that, uh, which means that we attempt to wrestle with this question of positioning a good and loving God with the idea that there is evil and suffering in the world. And it's something that we all wrestle with. It's just one of the many questions that we'll never be able to explain or have the full answer to. But something that may calm your hearts is to tell you that this generation, this postmodern generation of folks, finds comfort, finds comfort in you not knowing everything that it's okay to have questions, that it's okay to have doubts, that theodicy is a tough thing to wrestle with, and faith is a choice, not a mandate. That, and ultimately what they care about is that they care that you care enough about them to reach out and just have a conversation, which means that you as an average, just an average, ugh, <laughs> as an average guy or gal are good enough to listen to them and tell them about truth, grace, and forgiveness. You're not disqualified by what you don't know. You're qualified by what you do know. I'm going to repeat that. You're not disqualified by what you don't know. You're qualified by what you do know. One thing I want to go back and revisit is this relationship between Simon and Philip. Now, Simon was a true master magician and could recognize, and and even he could recognize something better than what uh, he knew. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. One of the things I kept thinking about as I was preparing this is if and how this interaction relates to us today. I don't think Philip's ability to perform miracles should be expected by us to be normative, but that's a whole different conversation for another day. But I do think there's something that can be gleaned from this interaction. Simon thought he knew magic until he saw true power demonstrated in a capacity that he wasn't capable of doing. Is there something short of miracles that we can demonstrate around us in a similar fashion, something that we could convince around the people 
that only God is capable of providing. Going back to the first thing, that's a hug that only the love of God would provide, right? <laughs> or the, you've heard the story about the woman whose, uh, whose kids were killed by a drunk driver, and she forgave them publicly. Or husbands and wives who have been unfaithful to each other, and you see the power of forgiveness in their relationship. Things that are just mind-blowing, otherworldly, to the concepts that we live in in our society today. And we all have those. We all have those stories. Perfection and knowing all the answers is not a prerequisite to bearing witness. People cannot connect to perfection, but they can identify with progress. We are all works in progress. And the one thing we know is the power of grace is too good not to share directly with someone. All right, think about it. If you want to know whether a restaurant is good, you don't go to their website. You go to Yelp. People trust other people. People are persuaded by the witness of other people. You are the recommendation engine. You are the Yelp for Jesus. You're not disqualified by what you don't know. You are qualified by what you do know. Now, we're in a bit, bit of a different spot than this story in Acts because most of us are in direct surroundings, have heard Jesus. And in many ways, our current, in our current society, that's a disadvantage uh, as there's a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be, um, to be a Christian. That you have to align with a certain political party or that you have to act a certain way. And for the latter, I certainly believed that for the longest time until Jeff and Shannon, especially, got it through my thick skull. So practically, your homework for this week, I want you to think about and look for opportunities to imbue the gospel into your conversation. Maybe you don't have to drop the J word outright, but plant a seed towards a day you can, knowing how you have been changed. Ask if you can pray for someone, either there or later, and then genuinely do, not because they specifically need prayer, but because everyone needs prayer. I pray for myself. I pray for my kids every day. Well, I should, but, you know. Um, <laughs> one of the easiest things i found is to bring government issues to heart issues. Instead of talking about why Democrats or Republicans are the only party to vote for, talk about how neither side compares to Jesus' team. I recently had a conversation with a non-Christian woman uh, about government policy, in which I really disagreed with her stance. But I didn't bring the conversation back to an issue of policy. Instead, I brought it back to an issue of hearts and minds. Because I think while policy can be important, it's not what ultimately matters. And I could see her wheels turning. It, was a, it wasn't a type of conversation she was used to. I didn't drop the J word, but hopefully I left her with something to think about and, uh, when eventually I could perhaps continue that conversation. I remember uh, a, ch a member of our church body several years ago, Jonathan Gould, if you guys remember him, giving a similar story uh, about gun rights. And he was right to conclude that these conversations uh, about government policy are so much more meaningful, or uh, changing, um, sorry, from a political discussion to a heart, are so much more important and meaningful than a political water cooler debate in which nothing else arises except for bad blood. This is not a competition. This is sharing out of love. You're not trying to win an argument. 
you're trying to share the love of Jesus. And that's a lesson I've learned several times, and hopefully you guys will avoid it. But there's, there's so many issues, ultimately, that this applies to. As we talked about today, the racial relations are a huge issue of discussion. The LGBTQ community is a huge area of discussion. Basically, anything that's political can be turned into a conversation about why God's plan is so much better than our own plans. Look at the mess of the world we live in as proof and start there. You're not disqualified by what you don't know. You're qualified by what you do know. In closing, we're not all called to be evangelists, preachers, speakers on stage, missionaries, or, or martyrs, but we are called to be a martos, a witness of Jesus' truth and grace. Remember this today, that the minute you leave, you're entering into a world full of people that won't need to hear the good news. Go tell someone. Father God, um, I thank you for your wonderful message. I thank you that um, that you that we have a universal story, and that you will never ever let us go. That you will always love us. That you will always show us truth, that you will always show us grace, that you will always show us forgiveness through Jesus. Help us to understand that in our hearts and help us to share that exact same love and understanding that we have for ourselves and express that to other people. Because that is what other people need to hear, God. And give us the power when we are fearful that... Um, you've got this, that we've got this, that from what we've experienced, from what we know, if, if, if it's good enough for us to believe, then other people can believe it too. That ultimately, your truth shines above everything else. Uh, we, I thank you for this opportunity to, as just a guy, to share with everybody else in my church community today and um, help me and help us to go forward and share your word and your good news. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.